All right, everybody, welcome to Finding Japan. I don't even know what episode this is. What episode is this, Terrence? I forgot to check that too. Uh, but hey, we're here, and this is the longest-running Japan podcast in the world. We're gonna say it. We think, yeah. We were talking about that the other day, weren't we? Where um, I was writing a, a bio, and I wanted to begin including some of these uh, extra projects in there, and I'm like, you know, all the greats, all the greats are gone, and so far, this is the only one that's still here. Yeah, we had what talk uh, Tokyo Calling, Hero Flum Japan, uh, the old Kobe Beef Show. Kobe Beef Show, yep. Yeah, I you know you could easily reclaim that title if you just push out a Kobe Beef Show episode. That is true. I yeah, I've thought about it. Hmm, I have weird. I have mixed feelings about it, but yeah. We'll need to get your back catalog back in order, though. I remember we went through it and we tried to find all those episodes a while ago. Yeah, I'm going to have to do some hunting. Occasionally people ask about it, so I should do some hunting for some back catalog and then figure out a cool way to kind of connect those, bridge those to like modern new episodes. And st- still keep the old format, but modernize it a little bit. Just, you know, yeah. Absolutely. So this is episode 83, certainly not the most prolific podcast, but probably the what we think is the longest running. So if if we're wrong, we're more than happy to cede that title to someone more deserving. So let us know if you're listening and you realize we're not the longest running. Yeah, but I realize, man, there are like successful podcasters out there and they'll say things like, I've been podcasting since 2010. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We were podcasting way back in the dark ages. Like that was the wild west of podcasting. Podcast Alley, the website that had like the top 100 podcasts when there were only like 100 podcasts. <laughs> I remember that, yeah. Oh, man. I, I miss I, those days. We're totally going off track from our main topic, but this is really cool because we haven't done a joint podcast in a long time. I was just going through uh, my one password, right? Because I store all my passwords in there, and there's a ton of stuff in there that's really old. So I'm like, oh, let's go through some of the stuff that's old. I was going through accounts I created in 2004, 2005, and a lot of it was old podcasting technology sites that are no longer around. Do you remember Odeo? I was about to, I couldn't come up with the name, but I knew, yeah, I wanted to say that too. Yeah. Yeah. So I still had one of those accounts. I still had a whole bunch of old stuff and I had to go through and delete it. Was, it was a trip down memory lane, man. It was amazing. Oh, nice. Ah, but we're not here to talk about productivity today. What are we here to talk about? We're here to talk about what is probably my favorite book of all time, a piece of Japanese literature. One of the most famous Japanese books, it is Snow Country by Kawabata Yasunari. So, so before we get into what this book is about, a little bit of history. So, Terrence, we, we've known each other for, for gosh, an awful long time, more than more than ten years, and yeah. I and I think you've told me about this book about once a year uh, since I've known you, <laughs> and it's funny because you're always like, "Hey, have you read Snow Country yet? I'm reading it again. I'm reading it again." And I think you've got a little bit of obsession with this book. Why don't you clue our listeners into uh, your yeah, obsession so, with this book? Uh, yeah. So back in uh, maybe late high school. It might have been by college. I basically uh, did Japan's, Japan studies or Japanese studies, not just language, but Japanese culture and uh, literature. Right. And I can't remember exactly when I first read it, but 
once you start learning about Japanese literature, Kawabata is like the one of the most famous writers, Japanese writers of all time. So his most famous book was Snow Country. So I think I read the, I read it in English then, and you know I remember really liking it, and I just remember, it was, it was I don't know how to say it was like deeply familiar in a Japanese sense, but also very almost alien,、mm. and、uh, just really struck a chord with me. You know it's. We'll talk. We'll get into it later. It's, it's it's not an exciting book. It's not you know. It's not action action packed. There's not a twist. It's, it's not a Tom Clancy novel. No, but it just really stuck with me. And I remember as I was learning to read in Japanese, I could speak Japanese for a while since I was a kid, but I couldn't really read Japanese. One of the books I wanted to read was Snow Country because I had read it in English and enjoyed it. And I remember. Finally, getting a Japanese copy and slogging through it. It's not a thick book, and it took me forever. And it was so opaque and vague. And I think I understood maybe fifty percent of it,、um, and some of it I just kind of flew through. And then, even though I read it up to that point two times, once in English and once in Japanese, it just really stuck with me. So every year, not every year, but every couple of years, three years, I'll just be like, you know what, I'm gonna read this again, and I just start to slog through it again. And、um, I just really find the Japanese to be beautiful. I often forget plot points. I can't remember who was where, what was when. Right.、Um, but I just the feeling of the words and the descriptions, and just this feeling like I love it when you read something and you go, "This guy's a master." Maybe a lot of like English speakers might feel that way when they read something by Hemingway. You know, they talk about the facility with language, like like it's a you know it's. Painting, painting the Sistine Chapel in words, like it's.、Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not a writer, so you know, I I can just only be impressed by it. But it's just so impressive,、um, the way those, yeah, the way those English language books are, a way a Hemingway book is, or a way.、Um, I really like、um, All the King's Men is one of my favorite books. Like just that. I've never read that. Yeah, it's a great. It's a great political novel.、Uh, it's、gotta、a great book, but just the put that the on the list, skill with with language. Yeah. So, so what what always fascinated me about this this book because、uh, it because it would come up in our conversations every couple of years so that 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 makes sense now that you were rereading it often but you also own many copies of this book so I understand that's a、um, that's a good point、uh, yeah so I, I think if I include this, this is where I have the English copy yeah <laughs> I have an English language copy that I think is back home in the states、um, I have an English language Kindle copy. I have a Japanese language, like just paper book copy,、um, and then I have a Japanese language Kindle copy, and then I have one more Japanese paper book copy because they recently come out came out with a series of classic Japanese novels, but the covers are all based on traditional Japanese tenugui, which are hand cloths, and they have these like beautiful traditional Japanese patterns, and they put these patterns on the cover. Uh, Japanese、uh, paperback books come with like a separate cover. The cover is、mm. not built in. There is a built-in cover, but there's an outside cover. The way American hardback books have that that jacket. That yeah. So Japanese paperbacks come with a jacket, and so that jacket has these beautiful like、uh, handcloth patterns of maybe like、uh, stylized leaves or traditional Japanese patterns from the 17 or 1800s or things like that. Do you still、um, do you still have? That cover,、um, you should take a picture of it. We'll, we'll put it up on the page. I'll take yeah, a picture of my cover,、I'll, and you can take a picture of yours. We'll put it. Well, up I've as... purposely kept it in good condition. Nice. And yeah, I have several books from this series because other books by other not,、uh, authors are also in this series and also have these covers. So yeah, so I the, think I sent. I even sent you a picture 
I took a picture a while back and sent it to you, but I can take another one and we'll post right. it somewhere. Let's the, do it. The English yeah. version is is also very short, so if you are interested in this book and looking for a, a quick read, um, I'm looking at it now. My version is 175 pages in English, and it's, it's quite... Um, it, the pages aren't very dense, um, so you can easily get through it in a, in a weekend. Um, take a take a read and then pop back in here and um, pick up the episode from here because I think we're probably going to cover some things in our discussion of this book that uh, may give away certain plot points. So just a, a fair warning ahead of time uh, for those who are interested in the book and want to take a, a, a read at it. But but anything else uh, you'd like to mention uh, about the book before we we dive into the to the plot or or, or perhaps maybe we can uh, cover. Uh, Kawabata and, and a little bit about him and, and how this book came to be. I know, I know you've got some information on that as well. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about Kawabata. To be honest with you, I'm just kind of kind of summarize stuff from the Wikipedia. There's stuff written in Japanese. Uh, a lot of it's long and just kind of like a, a filled with minutia. And I just think the Wikipedia page is, his Wikipedia page is really solid, the English language one, because he's quite a famous person. And there's just a few highlights from his life that might make it a little bit uh, make his work more understandable and a little bit interesting. And I might even talk a little bit, not to get into the, the weeds about it, but I might mention a couple of other books he's written just because I've read, I've read some of his other stuff and it's kind of interesting. A lot of them have been made into movies and there's even a really good movie and a, of a really, of one of his really good novels. So I might talk about that a little bit just so people get a, you know, a little bit bigger picture. Sure. Um, let's do that. I mean, but, I, I think probably yeah. the, the biggest thing, at least for, for English speaking listeners would be is he's, he actually won the Nobel prize for, for literature in the sixties, right? Yeah. That's a good start because he's the first Japanese to win the Nobel prize for literature, 1968. Yeah. And, um, and this is the, the, uh, the book that earned him that prize, if I'm not mistaken. It is one of them. Yeah. They cite, I think it's a, it's a body of a uh, lifelong body of work that they look at. But they cite uh, they cited Snow Country, A Thousand Cranes, and uh, Ancient Capital or Old Capital. Hmm. Uh, yeah, and so Kabata was born in 1899. Um, so you can kind of get an idea of when he lived. So basically, he he would have lived through World War One, and he would have lived through World War Two. And the interesting thing about Snow Country is that it was written kind of serially from 1937 up until like about 45. I think was he may have finished it before that, but I think that's when the last part of it was published. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was actually quite common practice in novels of the time to kind of publish them serially. Um, uh, so it was not published as a complete work initially. It was published no. in, in sections. Because I know the English uh, portion of the book as well is divided into part one and part two. Is it similar in Japanese? I think so, but I think he probably wrote it even in smaller bits than that. Mm. Yeah. But I'm looking at the Japanese copy, and actually, no, I don't see the I don't see the part one, part two split in the Japanese copy. Hmm. So it may have been more on the little chapters that it may have been uh, broken into. And in, yeah, and the English stats. version here really doesn't even have chapters. It's just uh, part one and part two. And part one is very short. Part two picks up uh, about I don't know forty percent way through the book. Okay. Yeah. So you know. So he was born in Osaka, apparently, and something happened to his family. I think everyone passed away or things happened, and he basically was kind of orphaned. Um, but he eventually moved to Tokyo and go to Tokyo Imperial University. 
and you know just started becoming a writer and i think he did a lot of shorter uh, shorter works in in literary journals and things like that what he's kind of famous for as far as like with his peers is that he's one of the uh, founders or one of the people in the what the Japanese call the Shinkan Kakuha, which means like new, uh, sometimes it's mistranslated as neo impressionism, but it's a little bit more like new sensations or new perceptions. Hmm. And I don't know a lot about it. One of the areas that we can talk about later that the beginning of the book, the opening of Snow Country, has a lot of short, sharp sentences. Hmm. Um, and this is something that struck me as a little bit. The reason why I talked about Hemingway earlier is that Hemingway is also famous for relatively short kind of um, sharp sentences, uh, short, sharp sentence structure. And Kawabata uses that a lot, too, especially in Snow Country. So that's kind of interesting. Um, and then uh, some of his other famous works are, for example, The Dancing Girl of Izu, uh, which I've never read. Uh, one I've read that I like is uh, The Sound of the Mountain. And this was a later work, actually. It was written after Snow Country and a little bit towards the later end of his career. Um, I really enjoy it. It has a very cinematic feel, although Snow Country feels very cinematic in a lot right. of ways, too. Um, the sound of the mountain is cinematic, not in the scenery sense the way Snow Country is, but more in a sense of like each chapter would end with these emotional cliffhangers or almost like dun, dun, dun. But they're just emotional <laughs> beats. Like they're not. Kind of like a soap dun, dun, opera. Dun, but. What's up? It's kind of like a uh, like a soap opera, yeah. right? You know, you, every yeah. commercial break ends in a sort of, what's she going to say? Yeah, but nothing crazy is going on. It's just a family drama, right? It's yeah. not, but it's written, that structure's done so well. And there's a great movie by one of my favorite Japanese directors, uh, uh, Naruse Mikio, which, who's a great director. And if you have a chance, if you, uh, The Sound of the Mountain is actually quite a thick book for Kawabata. So if you're not up to that challenge, at least watch the movie. It's a great movie. Hmm. Um, and then Naruse is great. So I would recommend also When the Woman Ascends the Stairs, which is another classic movie by Naruse. I like, one of the things I love doing is I'll read the novel and then watch, a lot of these were made into movies. So then I'll then watch the movies because a lot of the movies were directed by really famous directors, which is another obsession of mine is Japanese uh, old school directors from the 50s and 60s. So, hmm. yeah. Um so, so, so you mentioned the, the the cinematicness of this book, and I think yeah. that's probably best embodied by the by the opening line. And you know, I'm kind of a, a guy who, who likes to eat the dinner before the dessert. So, mm -hmm. I, I think I think it might be helpful to to kind of go over that opening line and then tie it back to his 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 writing style. Um, if if you like, I'll, I'll go over the the English one, and then you can talk about the the Japanese. Uh, opening because because you had mentioned before it's probably one of the best known openings uh to a book in japan correct yes yeah so so the the english um translation of the opening line is actually quite bland um i i think it does a disservice to the uh to to the the cinematic nature of, of kawabata's writing style but, but here's the here's the opening line and, and i'll try to do it in my my best npr voice uh, <laughs> The train, <laughs> the train came out of the long tunnel into the snow country. Dun dun dun! All right. So what what do we got in Japanese for that opening line? And and maybe walk us through why why it is so cinematic. All right. Kokkyo no nagai tunnel wo nukeruto yukiguni deatta. So that literally translates just to give it a literal translation so you can kind of see the order and how Japanese works and why that might be 
have a certain impression is that kokkyo means like the border mm. so the uh the long tunnel of the border the train passed through and came into the snow country might be like a weird kind of almost yoda way of translating it but you can kind of get that feeling so you're going through the long border the this long border tunnel and then you kind of like i can if some i've never seen any movie based on snow country a couple of them exist i have not heard the best reputations but i might have to dig one up and hmm. find it and watch it but i always imagine like i don't know just like some camera in the the pointing at a tunnel and it's dark and then as the train comes out kind of bursts into you know this like white landscape a little bit before evening not quite dark yet and then maybe it gets dark later as we get to the actual beginning of the of the book but i actually wanted to go further and go back to the english and read read the next two sentences sure because yeah it's this staccato it's this rhythm that's amazing so let me um so, let me read that first yeah. um one okay. again and do the do the next two sentences as well mm-hmm the train came out of the long tunnel into the snow country. The earth lay white under the night sky. The train pulled up at a signal stop. And the Japanese goes, Kokkyo no nagai tonneru wo nukeru to yuki guni de atta. Yoru no soko ga shiroku natta. Shingo shou ni kisha ga tomatta. What's really interesting about this, and I don't think you need to understand Japanese to get a sense of the rhythm in the writing. And, and a lot of Kawabata's writing, too, is a reference to, to uh, you know, many people will know the, the haiku style, a 17-syllable poetic style. Um, but what's really interesting um, here is even if you don't understand Japanese, you can just hear the rhythm of what is being said, specifically because, you know, in Japanese uh, uh, grammar, the the uh, informal form past tense of a verb always ends in ta or da. So it, it can be very uh, poetic in a sense. But but I think going a little bit deeper, that especially, man, that second sentence is always what, what um, nails me in terms of, 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 of poetic and cinematic view. T- tell us what's going on here with, with those first three lines. Yeah, so as you pointed out, in Japanese, each sentence will end with ta because of the way the verb structure works in Japanese. And that second sentence is just really cool because essentially, like it, Yoda translates into uh, the bottom of the night was white. Or no, the bottom of the night became white. Right. So basically the night just melted into the white snow. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, uh, is it Edward Seidinger is the translator yep side side and sticker side and sticker i think he does a great job it's a it's a it's a it has it's a it's a well-known translation has a great reputation he does do I, a good job i think the, the earth lay white under the night sky which is not a yeah. direct translation but i think attempts to uh capture the the cinematic nature of his writing yeah and so i just think he does a great job but it's not the same. There are some things in Japanese that just work towards this style. Like, I guess for it to be translated more directly into English based on the Japanese would make it maybe sound a little over dramatic or even a little bit ridiculous and, and venture a little too much into Yoda land. So I think, yeah, that's why, you know, Side Sticker made the, I think, the right choice to just bring it into English and, you know, make it literary for the English language. Yeah. So, so um, I don't think we've given anything away about the book yet. Um, but yeah, you know, the opening line, the opening paragraph, at least, is, is quite quite famous. And I think a good um, 
summary of, of, of what we're going to expect uh, in this book and with the writing. Um, what What's the plot of this book? What happens? Um, I think we should talk a little bit about that, and this is probably the time where if you're one of those people who really just, I don't want to know, I want to read it first, please bow out now, but I, I hope we're probably not going to give away a lot just by talking about the plot, so yeah, let, let's go over that. We've got the, the main character, uh, Shimamura, who is mm-hmm. a, uh, what would you call him? Uh, he's a sort of a to- Tokyo socialite. Yeah, uh, didn't they, is this, I saw somewhere something about dilettante. Dilettante, yeah. Maybe yep. a dilettante. I, you know, I don't really know what that word means. Yeah, I don't know either. <laughs> I have an but, idea of what it means, but I don't know if it's accurate. So whatever we imagine that word to be, that's what he is. <laughs> even if we're even if we're wrong, I think what the average person thinks dilettante means, you're probably not too far off yeah. from what Shimamura probably is. So here's a guy who likes to go to his own sin trips, you know, out into the snow country. Uh, you know, probably has a salaryman job in, in, in Tokyo and is looking for some sort of uh, solo vacation escapism on a frequent basis. I actually think he's probably um, comes from a wealthy family. So he doesn't really, really have to work. So he has this kind of like half-assed job. That's why he can... Um, he apparently takes these trips maybe several times a year or mm. not necessarily the same location, I get the feeling. Um, that's why in the plot of the book, as he visits this uh, this resort this onsen this hot spring town uh which is probably in real life based on a town uh that's located in niigata and the term snow country um is specific to this part of japan because it's it's what they call the uh, this part of this is the north part so this is not saying but this is the japan seaside of the country right and um Historically and geographically and culturally, the Japan seaside of the country is less populated, uh, darker, the, the weather, the climate, um, a little more isolated. And so that's another thing about the tunnel line and entering this world that's so brilliant that you feel like you're, you're starting a movie. I, I think of it like almost starting like a, I think like, like, like Fargo, Coen Brothers Fargo or something. When I think the opening scene of that is over the snowscape of Fargo. So. Mm. Yeah, takes you into the world. So, it, it's almost um, um, meant to be a like a fantasy world in a lot of ways. It's an escape. Yeah. So Shima Shimamura is like a he's a uh, ballet critic, but he's never gone to see the ballet, and I think he's also into French literature or something. Mm-hmm. And he writes reviews or does some kind of journalistic slash half academic kind of work, and uh, takes these trips several times a year. And the book kind of starts us off with his, him visiting the same town again to go see the same girl that he's established a relationship with. So it starts in the, I guess, what would be the present time of the book. And then later, a little bit, just a little into the book, it'll kind of flash back to maybe his very first visit when mm-hmm. he visits the, when he meets the kind of object of his affections or the person he has the affair with. One of two women in this story, which is uh, Komako who is a geisha uh, in this town. And uh, the one thing to be careful with with Western audiences about geisha is that um, the geisha that you classically hear about, like in Kyoto and in very famous uh, tea houses, 99% of the time, these women are not prostitutes, just to make that clear. Um, but geisha from in regional areas who are not as like 
the level of their level as geisha is not as high it's not as prestigious there is a blurred line between women who entertain at banquets by mm-hmm. serving alcohol uh singing traditional songs playing games with the customers and also having sexual relationships with the customers at times right. so i think that understanding that geisha doesn't equal prostitutes but it can cross into that there's another thing about kawabata's kind of vague style of writing that is such a great representative of the vague aspects of Japanese culture where Japanese aren't as caught up on uh, creating clear lines between things as we might be in, in a more Western society or Western point of view. Right. So that's an interesting part of the book. And then, so I mentioned Komako, but there's actually one more woman. And why that's important is because right after the book describes entering the snow country, it's a scene of Shimamura in the train sitting kind of kitty, kitty corner or diagonally across from kind of behind and across from this woman who's he can see her reflection in the window and knows that she has this sick man with her that she's taking care of and kind of think holding his head on her her lap and he's fantasizing and looking at her and thinking about her and that kind of starts uh his re-entry into the back into this snow country it's a, this, yeah it's actually uh, the first resort. female character that's introduced in the book uh yeah. yet not the one that's primarily focused on until later in the book yeah that's very interesting um, so so we we have uh it, it's a can we call it a love triangle maybe i don't know not really because i don't know if there's a relationship between yoko and komako it's not clear um yeah but it is about a, a man who's making these these visits and as you as you mentioned in the book it starts off with probably one of the 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 um middle visits and then it goes back and revisits the first time he had been there and then the latter half of the book is really focused on the last time he's there yeah it, what, it comes, you kind of comes back the to the present time. of the book yeah right okay so that that's um interesting we i think we've sort of painted the plot arc here um mm-hmm. the, the book is about it, it really i would say musing and exploring uh the relationship of that type of nature and as you mentioned you know these geisha are not typically prostitutes so it's not meant to be a you know a pretty woman type uh scenario going on here um however it is interesting to note that the book does mention that shimamura does have a family in tokyo including children so Mm -hmm. this also i think sort of plays a part of the japanese uh not clearly defining lines uh, in terms of uh, relationships or, or fidelity or infidelity. And, and other than some oblique references to his family or his wife in, in, in Tokyo, uh, it's really not talked about. So it really is, I think, kind of uh, gives more weight to the sense of this is meant to be a, uh, a fantasy or escape type story. Uh, from my point of view, I think that that's kind of how it's looked at. And I think a, a reader in, in Japan would probably view it as the same way and take it as a given that, okay, you know, this is a, uh, we're going to go through Shimamura's, uh, you know, uh, side hustle here. <laughs> yeah. I, I, it's a lot of these, uh, oblique references, uh, vaguely hinted at things, even things that should be more direct when you're talking about a, you know, an affair, uh, such as just plain sex is very kind of, there are there are no explicit scenes of of Shimamura and Komako having sex. Right, we actually um, talked about that. Right, it's very hard to nail down like even how many times they copulated during the during the book. Yeah, uh, there are some very like erotic um, 
uh, depictions. Uh, Shimamura early on after seeing uh, Komako again, like touches her hand and rubs it in this way that you know that that very much uh, alludes to uh, digital you know um, stimulation of a woman's you know more private parts. But he's touching her hand and saying he he talks about. I miss this. I miss the feeling of this, or I miss how you feel, and it's, you know, it's 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 subtle, but quite quite dirty and quite erotic and quite and interesting. And it, I remember it throwing me off a little bit because I, what I wondered was like, am I just being a modern dirty person and reading this totally wrong? And there's actually a more like you know lovely and innocent poeticness to this. And I was like, <laughs> upon a few readings, I'm like, no, nah, I think probably he's not. talking about what he's talking about. I think what's interesting is uh, as a. Um, in a reader of purely the English translation, I have not read the the Japanese translation. Though, side note, that is a maybe a life goal of mine uh, to try to do that at some at some point. But I think in in reading the the English version of this book, it, it's very difficult, uh, even in English, and perhaps more so because of the vague nature of Japanese language in general. And then you're losing probably losing a little bit through translation and the uh, uh, side and sticker. Great translation, I, I, I believe. Uh, it still re- keeps its uh, poetic nature, but but it's even harder to know when you're reading it in English, right? You're you're reading through two layers as opposed to just reading the Japanese and maybe accepting what's unsaid. Here you're wondering, well, what is unsaid? It's kind of clear, and that certainly is apparent in the dialogue as well. Yeah, there are some parts of the dialogue. I was uh, I was telling you the other day that when the English dialogue seemed weird. I'd, and I'd go back and reference the Japanese, and the Japanese would be words that don't translate into English, like yoroshiku onegaishimasu, which means like, you know, like I, I trust that you will treat me well in like in in our ongoing relationship or in this situation or the next time I see you. Like it's it's a classically Japanese term, and then you can kind of sense. But I wasn't sure, like, like this is a pretty old book, and Side and Sticker's um, translation is not, you know, it's 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 not that new. It's it was done not that long after the book itself was published, um, or maybe a few, you know, maybe quite a few years. But it's closer to the translation than it is to our time now. So I was almost wondering sometimes if some of it was just like this is just some dude, you know, over fifty years ago translating something, and the way we make fun of like old timey, you know, TV shows or radio shows, like. Hey, hello there, sir, chap. You know, like some <laughs> right. of the dialogue or the translation style might be a little bit old-fashioned. There might be some of that, but I do think some of it is the, yeah, just things that are just not very well translated and have to be indirectly translated and attached to uh, equivalents that we can find in, you know, English language or in, a, you know, in an English-speaking culture. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I... um wanted to talk maybe about one more topic before we um, start getting into the spoilers. Um, you, had, mm-hmm. you had mentioned the, the cinematic nature of this, and one thing I had pointed out on our uh, uh, prep for this is the, the amount of time and attention that the author spends describing the environment uh, around uh, Shimamura and, and these particular areas with a specific re- reference to insects. Um, I found that fascinating because, you know, obviously in the in the mountains there's um, many different types of animals, squirrels, deer. Um, I, I assume that, um, you know, there's a lot you could potentially talk about, birds, for example. Um, but the book focuses primarily on insects, and I found that interesting. There was one passage uh, in particular, um, and I believe it's uh, referring to his 
the last uh, visit uh, where his wife mentions to him that he should be careful because it's moth season and the moths are out. And from that point forward, I kind of noticed a lot of imagery on, on insects and, and sort of life and death. My, my view on that, and I'm curious to get your view as well, is that uh, insects uh, represent such a short lifespan. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's very easy for humans to, to notice and, and reflect on the life cycle uh, of things uh, growing and dying. There's a, I think there's a reference to a moth laying eggs on the lacquer of like a hanger or something like that. Um, there's a reference to dragonflies feeling like they're trying to escape the forest. Uh, there's a reference to, uh, I think it was a honeybee or a bee, uh, fighting its last last death in a you know a format room, which seemed weird. You know this big world and this bee trying to survive, and he watches it die. Um, what what was your take on it? Did, did you get anything related to that, or do you think that's just part of the cinematic nature of his writing and the um, the way he was trying to paint the picture? No, I I, th- I think it's a I think it is and, part of the way he's. And trying speaking to paint the of picture. that, a spider just ran across my desk. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Which I which I uh, disposed of. Sorry, I'm not a Buddhist. Okay. Oh, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I tend to let spiders go because I have this like feeling that they're kind of the good bugs and they'll get rid of the bad bugs. So I tend to, I tend to be a little more. Uh, uh, he was he was crawling on my arm, man. He was he's like, I'm okay. gonna get you. Don't talk bad about my kind. <laughs> anyway, so he's. Life and death, all right. We've just had a death. All right, continue. Sorry. <laughs> You're just trying to prove point. Impermanence. <laughs> <laughs> but, unless you, uh, unless you yeah. believe in reincarnation, you know? Yeah. Uh, not really, but uh, there is a Japanese term, mono no aware. What, what which is, is It is the uh, ephemera. It is the impermanence of things. So I think you're right that bugs are, in compared to bugs, we live... You know, we live as long as gods. We're like gods compared to bugs, you know, right. lifespan. So we can kind of see them in their cycles. And the other thing about bugs is that as humans, bugs are probably the things that we see the most dead than any, you know, minus, I'm not talking about people who work, who are coroners or, you know, ER doctors or police officers who see death. But the average person probably sees death more in the form of bugs than almost anything else. No, that's a good point. I didn't think about it from that perspective um, and so and i don't know if that's what kabata was thinking about per se but i just mean that is able to encapsulate that the cycle like you said like bugs come around in a certain season and they're gone by a certain season um there's a lot of like in japanese literature and in movies and in just artistic depictions there are a lot of things about bugs especially like for example semi cicadas and you know their their particular and peculiar uh, lifespan and how they'll come out and sing very loudly and then towards the end you'll hear some of them at the end of the season like have this broken like singing because they're just right. dying and then they just fall off whatever screen door they were on and you know and then you find their little crusty body being eaten up by ants and then you know well and know, also all, too the, the, the circle of life you know lion king <laughs> goes on so. the the semi as well are are kind of a I don't know how to say this. They're sort of like built into Japanese culture, right? So it wouldn't be too unbelievable or fantastic for a Japanese author to describe 
you know, uh, the, the, the chirping of, of uh, cicadas as uh, to, to describe a, a background scene in Tokyo, for example, right? There wouldn't be anything mm-hmm. really fantastic about that. But I think I think what Kawabara does here is a little different because it's focusing on the micro details of some very specific insects in certain scenarios for no other purpose than I think to create that, you know, to, or to flesh out the canvas, right? Because mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know if I'm, I'm trying to make a bigger connection here than there really is, but I, it is one thing that I found interesting and quite enjoyable about the writing uh, because I felt like I was there. I felt like I was getting a, a view of what was happening in the environment around him. I think it's a great observation. Um, I had not, it had not struck me as much, but when I go to read this book again, I'm definitely going to pay attention to that a lot more. Um, the thing I got from the nature was a lot of the description of the nearby mountains and the, I think there's a nearby town that is a, is famous for looming like a, or right. silk weaving or some industry. And he talks about that for a little bit. Um, there are these descriptions of like, just, yeah, the surrounding the mountains and the trees and, and the things in the distance. Um, that I found really striking. Um, It's been a little while since I've last read the book, so I can't quite remember good examples and I didn't have a chance to really go through that because it just kind of weaved throughout the book. But um, those kind of things really struck me. Um, Yeah, the mountains were almost like timekeepers. Yeah. You know, both for the seasons and for the night, uh, which I found Mm -hmm. interesting in terms of how, how they were described. Cool. So I, I think this is probably the part where we say, okay, if you're really interested in the book, um, you should go read it, uh, because I want to get into some of the more interesting questions about the book. That uh, having read it, um, you know, people might be interested in, in in what we think. But to do so, we're, we're going to start giving away some some plot points. Uh, any anything else you think is worth mentioning before we get into that? Um, I'm looking at some stuff right now, thinking about it. Um, before we get to the end, because it's quite tragic, and I think as we just talked about impermanence, so death is going to come in as a theme. Uh, just for people who don't know, um, Kalbata died by apparent suicide in 1972. Um, he apparently gassed himself, probably like in a similar way to Sylvia Plath. I don't, I don't know how similar the actual mechanics of their deaths are, but I think hers was a gassing also. So, although some people say it may just have been an accident, he was trying to adjust some, the, I don't know, not pipeline, but make an adjustment on the stove and accident, may have accidentally killed himself uh, or may have killed himself uh, intentionally because he learned that he had Parkinson's or that he was, uh, he had, he had, he might've had an illicit affair towards the end of his life. And maybe something disturbing about that in relationship to his wife uh, may have drove him to suicide. Another thing is that he was a friend of uh, another very famous Japanese writer, Mishima Yukio, who very, very famously died in the 1970 by um, seppuku or harakiri. I mean, classic. He, he was the head of this kind of right wing kind of paramilitary group. And he had his second in charge, essentially. He cut his own belly. The idea of seppuku is you cut your own belly with a shorter knife, and then your second in charge are kind of like, yeah, your right-hand man chops off your head. This guy actually killed himself this way. Hmm. He's another one of Japan's most famous um, writers. And maybe even a more interesting character as far as like 
the quirks of his life and his personality than Kawabata. He's a pretty interesting guy. But wow. all of those things may have led Kawabata to uh, kill himself or at least, you know, just, yeah, die before his natural natural end. Um, it's an interesting, you know, it's an interesting thing at the end, to, at the end of his life. And some of those things kind of seem like they may have had some roots and some uh, germination in his in 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 this work. Uh, so I just wanted to yeah let people know about that before we kind of get to the end. Um, cool. Was there was there anything else you wanted to cover or no? I want to I want to the I want to get into the end, but um, I, I I think I think we covered the the setting, who Kawabata was, uh, what you can expect with this book. So if you're interested in reading it, go do it now. Uh, we will wait. And then I'll, I'll insert music like, like some elevator music in here. (laughs) (laughs) And then, uh, all right, welcome back. I hope you enjoyed the book. If you didn't, we're going to spoil it now. Um, so I think some of the most interesting, uh, questions that we, we came up on is, uh, what exactly happened at the end of this book and how do we interpret it? Um, I think we've got a couple of, uh, paragraphs to discuss here as well, but let's talk about, uh, what happens in the end? So Shimamura and Komako are sort of having this uh, passionate, dysfunctional uh, relationship that Shimamura is slowly starting to realize how dysfunctional it may be and how he may never be able to truly be happy, right? Because I think he kind of realizes that though he likes Komako and there's something there, it's not something that's sustainable. And there's many different passages associated with that. But there's a section towards the end of the book, maybe I don't know, maybe about four fifths in, where he he gets reacquainted with with Yoko and he sees something else uh, in Yoko. Yeah, um, one of the things about uh, Shimamura and Komako's uh, dysfunctional relationship is that several times throughout the book, Komako stumbles into his room like blasted drunk, and seems to emotionally need more than Shimamura can give, and. On one level, it should be, and I think is smart enough to realize that, but but not mature enough to truly like face that reality and you right. know, do something about it by you know totally leaving him or maybe pressing her case more. So you just get these cycles of these like you mentioned like her her uh, her her craziness, her manicness, her just sudden like outbursts against him, and then she you know passes out or runs off or something, and I think. He does love her or he does care for her. He has feelings for her. But maybe at some point, it's not said directly, but he might be getting a little tired of her craziness. And so he sees, yeah, he reconnects with Yoko. I think it has to do with the visiting the grave of the uh, the fiancé who, who Yoko was taking care of, who passed right. away. And I think at some point in the in the spring, one of the springs that come up in the book, they go, they all... Yoko was already there visiting the grave, and I think Komako and Shimamura show up too by accident, and there's a little bit of a connection there. Um, and this was apparently Komako's fiance as well, right? Who Yoko at some was point taken maybe earlier, care of, but yeah. she, but she says that he wasn't, or gets offended when it's mentioned that he may have been. Yeah, it's kind of weird there, but that's the connection between uh, that the deceased young man is the connection between Yoko and Komako. And I think Shimamura is just like kind of there adjacent and then takes this like distant, almost like very kind of selfish, but just very self-absorbed um, personal, 
obsession or view towards Yoko. But I don't think at any point really getting to truly know her or have any kind of true interaction with her. No, it doesn't seem so. And, I, you know, one of the themes that I had mentioned is, you know, is Yoko an apparition? Was she even real? Um, I think that's a little deep because there are some more concrete things that happen. But, um, yeah, it, it almost seems like she's the the girl he can't have, that he's not even sure he should pursue or if it would make sense. But there's certainly something enigmatic uh, about her that gets introduced uh, upon their meeting again. And, and I think that goes back to the opening lines uh, in the book in the first part where he he meets her or he, he sees her on the train. And I even think uh, in the English translation they use the word apparition. Like he wasn't sure if she was real because he's looking at her reflection and she's kind of blending into the mountains as he's looking outside the train car. Mm-hmm. So, but then but then there's the uh, the fire, right? It's the town theater that catches on fire. Which was also a silkworm spinning something, right? It like was, factory or yeah. storage. Yeah, like a giant, um, not granary, but one of those kind of, almost like a barn, but not for farm animals, but for the, yeah, the cocoons or the silk, the silk, yeah, so, production. So the reader is is currently in this mode where they are watching Shimamura, Komako, and Yoko try to resolve this tension. And the tension and tension is building and building, and it's more of the relationship and sexual tension. And then this fire breaks out, and uh, Shimamura and Komako are running towards the fire. And as they're running towards the fire, there's two things that are, that are happening that are really interesting that I wanted to get your take on. Uh, the first is the dialogue between Shimamura and Komako, which is this dialogue about how we can help and no, you can't come, which goes back and forth for, I don't know, like maybe four or five times where she mm-hmm. runs off and he's like, okay, no, I can't go, but I have to chase her. Um, so that's one line of, of, of uh, interesting dialogue. And then the second is all the references to the Milky Way, which suddenly come in. The Milky Way hadn't been referenced in the prior in the book and then suddenly start to make an appearance. What, what did you think of, of those two things as, as we're leading up to the fire? Yeah, I think if I remember correctly, Shimamura and Komako were already like having one of their like, like the relationship obviously is starting to unravel and needs to come to an end. I think they're both trying to figure out their own way of ending it. Right. And I think they were hanging out together and not hanging out. They were having, they were together and having an argument or discussion about this when simultaneously in the town, I think alarm bells are rung and like smoke is coming from up in the distance. And it's, and I think a, a, a third party character kind of yells that the theater or that building is on fire. And then I think Komako remembers that knows that Yoko is going to be there for some reason, or maybe just thought because it's a, a big, you know, it's it's a small town and a, some play or something's going on at the theater that everyone would be there. So I think they both rush over there. And yeah, that interesting, that interesting dynamic of, yeah, should I go to help or should I not? Um, I think I wonder if some of it is like, if Shimamura is so not committed to the reality of his relationship, whatever it may be, with Komako, then she's like, why are you coming along? You don't care anyway. Or maybe you only want to come along because you have some interest in Yoko and it's not really about me or helping me. Right. You know, it, I don't know what to make of it exactly, but it's a strange... I think it connects to the end where... We'll talk about this a little bit later, but but the way the book ends really points towards Shimamura's uh, impotence and his like his kind of his his uselessness and mm. almost how he's detached from the reality of what's going on around him 
Right. And it, that, I think that's, um, summarized really well in the scene where, uh, they're bringing the water pumps and in, in, um, Kawabata describes the water pumps going by and Komako and Shimamura sort of just falling in line behind them and kind of going with uh, the water pumps because they really don't help or do anything. They're mm -hmm. just caught up in following this event as it unfolds. Interesting. So they get to the fire and they realize that there may have been somebody in there, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Which uh, you know, should be obvious by now. Um, is, is Yoko. And, and I think it's actually, it's, it's, uh, it's Komako who actually is able to go in there and get to Yoko. Right. And it comes, you know, get to her and, and even though she's wearing this kimono and I think Yoko's also in a kimono and this is not the most, you know, like athletic or workable clothing. So she's in this and, and, you know, and I don't think Yoko is very, a very big person the average japanese woman even today is usually not that big but komoko's also not very big either but it's carrying yoko and you can have this sense of like it's taking everything for her to get her through mm -hmm. and kind of bring her out of the fire or bring her out of the the ruins of the building and it's interesting one of the in the notes i i uh i pasted in a couple of the paragraphs and there's an interesting uh, paragraph where they talk a lot about her slight movement of Yoko's slight movement. Like she's unconscious, but she's slightly moving. And she, you can tell that they, they're not explicitly talking about her being dead yet. And I think even Shimamura, there's a line that says, for some reason, Shimamura did not see death in the still form. He I, felt rather that Yoko had undergone some shift, some metamorphosis. I, I, uh, I I've had a connection here. Um, just as we were talking, this is unplanned. Mm -hmm. I, I think I found a reason why Kawabata puts so many references to insects. Mm, because if I was you thinking about that too. if you read this and think about it, um, you know Shimamura did not see death in a still form, but he felt rather that she had undergone some shift, some metamorphosis. It's almost leading up to viewing perhaps Yoko's death as like an insect death. Um, somebody that, you know, maybe you had a relationship with, but not really. And, and does it really matter in the end to, to Shimamura? Are, are we meant to interpret that her death was much like the death of the bee in, in the big empty room? Mm -hmm. I, I don't know, but it is kind of interesting. And I think that may be perhaps the connection between the two. I'm not sure. I think so. Or I definitely think that Kawabata meant to put all those bug references and then not necessarily refer them refer back to them directly, but just leave you with that, so that when you read this, you maybe there's the aftertaste of all the scenes with the bugs, especially the the bee in the big room and all that. Yeah. And then you can kind of get that feeling, because I think this the sense is that Shimamura is not even seeing. Not only is he not seeing death, he's not seeing her as a human being per se. He didn't know her, so it's just this thing where. He had one kind of fantasy of her, and she transforms into something else. Yeah, I, I think the the broad theme of of Kawabata's work here is the, you know, unlike many books perhaps, but the you know humanity cannot always be achieved, right? If you're going to go into the mountains and have these affairs and have a a vision of of grandeur of perhaps or a fantasy of of having a deep meaningful relationship with people, um, it may be that it's just as shallow and 
not meaningful as the death of an insect in your room. Yeah, I think that's a good observation. So let's look at this paragraph that is considered probably the paragraph where Yoko does or does not die. I'm going to read this. Sure. Uh, the long geisha's skirts trailing behind her, she staggered through the pools of water and the charred bits of wood that lay scattered over the ground. She turned and struggled back with Yoko at her breast. Her face was strained and desperate, and beneath it, Yoko's face hung vacantly, as at the moment of the soul's flight. Komako struggled forward as if she bore her sacrifice or her punishment. Yeah. I think, I think this pretty much definitively says that Yoko died, but I guess there could be some disagreement to that. I think for all intents and purposes that she did die. Uh, I think what's more important and actually what's more signifying the death rather than the uh, soul's flight or even the, uh, was it, uh, hanging vacantly? Uh, yeah, the... even more than that, I actually think it's the Komako struggled for, t- forward as if she bore her sacrifice or her punishment. Right. Like, I actually think that's the sentence that really says, hey, you know, like, this is kind of on you. You didn't kill her, of course, but, you know, there's a part of you that's either making a sacrifice or you're being, you're being punished for your behavior. Maybe it connects, I don't know if it connects to the back to the fact that she may have been, the, that the uh, deceased man may have been also her uh, fiance and she didn't really face that or take, you know, take responsibility for that. I'm not sure, but there's a seem to be some kind of penance that Komako seems to have to pay. And Komako really didn't have a lot of good things to say about Yoko. There was something in the book that referenced like how she was crazy, right? Komako would always refer to her as crazy or, um, including at the end, right? I think, uh, yes, yes. (laughs) What is the phrase at the end? Like, uh, Kigachigawa, it's a very Japanese woman style language, which is another thing that, I wonder how it translates, but let me just read this Japanese just real quick, if I can find it right away. I'll, I'll read the English uh, oh, here while we you go. search for that. It's, she says, this is right at the end, uh, she says, keep back, keep back, please. He heard Komako's cry. This girl is insane. She's insane. That's Komako referring to Yoko. So again, this connects a lot to the fact that um, the Japanese language has a lot of... Uh, Emphasis on the end of sentences. And so things, this is not a verbal conjugation as much as it's a, I forgot what it's called in linguistics. It's those, uh, a lot of Asian languages have it. In other words, it's emphases or words at the end that don't specifically have meaning, but add a certain weight or an emphasis or uh, a certain, uh, give you a certain feeling. And so the line is, Konoko, kigachigaua, kigachigaua. And there's two things about this. One, um, it's that this kind of speaking would only be done basically by a woman. There are some, like, for example, the Kansai dialect, even men might say wa at the end of a sentence like this, but probably not quite like this. Right. Um, but generally in, in standard Japanese, this is considered a feminine or female way of speaking. Right. And essentially, she's emphasizing the state of Yoko being crazy. It's like saying, like, 
you know, like, she's crazy, I tell ya, she's crazy, I tell ya, you know, some weird things like that, where it's this, that means nothing, right? I tell ya means nothing, we got it, you already said what you had to say, but right. by adding that, you're kind of putting a punctuation mark on the, or an exclamation point on the, on the feeling of what you're trying to say. And the other funny thing about it is that Komako herself sounds a little crazy saying this. Like, it makes her cr- sound crazy. Right. What a weird time to declare that. Right? Because, cl- I mean, clearly it wasn't her fault that the, uh, you know, nothing to do with Yoko's state of mind had contributed in any way to the fire. Or maybe, maybe it did. We, yeah. we don't know. There's no there's no um, reference to that. Um, but I, th- I think it just goes to the fragile and attentive nature of the relationships that these three characters had. I think Yoko's also, uh, not Yoko, Komako is also in a state of shock and denial. True. I think that's part of this too. Yeah, people say crazy things when they're in shock, so. Yeah. Which is funny. She's saying that someone's, her denial is to say that this woman's crazy, which is something like you said, that as you had mentioned, that has kind of been her refrain throughout the books. I think she's drawing that back. At the same time, by doing that, she's showing that she's not in the most stable state, which is quite interesting. And in fact, Yoko probably being dead is the least craziest person of the three. Right. She's passed away. So, um, which is interesting. So let's, let's wrap it up here. I want to move to the last mm-hmm. paragraph because we were trying to figure out what happened to Shimamura as well. Um, yeah. I want to uh, cover this in English and Japanese because maybe, maybe we can unpack this here. Uh, so the very last paragraph of the book brings back some of the references to the Milky Way. Yeah, he let's, says, let's just mention that Shimamura has kind of been at a distance and like kind of coming up, like, you know, he's been following Komako the whole time, but Komako went in and actually brought Yoko out and Shimamura has kind of just been observing this. So this is as Komako is coming back with Yoko and Shimamura is there. It states, he tried to move forward that half mad voice, but he was pushed aside by the men who had come up to take Yoko from her. As he caught his footing, his head fell back, and the Milky Way flowed down inside him with a roar. That's a, oh wait, what, that's some fantastic imagery to end a book with. It is a great ending. I, um, you know, it actually took me a while to really realize what a great ending this book had. I'd always so focused. I was always so focused on the, on the, uh, the beginning. Then in recent readings, I've been this ending is amazing. It's great. And in 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 a lot of ways, it's a mirror image of of the the opening, right? So the opening is the train coming out, and the snow country landscape unfolding in front of the reader, and assumingly Shimamura-san as well. And then at the end, it's it's the opposite, right? It's 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 that wideness then flowing back into Shimamura. What so so? What's the the Japanese uh, writing for that? So the Japanese goes, So you koega, monokuro washi, komako ni, shimamura wa chikazuko toste, yoko wo, komako kara, dakitoro to suru, otokotachino, otokotachini, osarete, yoromeita, fumikotaete, mega ageta, totan, sa, to oto tatete, amanogawaga, shimamura no nakae, nagare, ochiruyo deata. So not a not a 
direct translation, right? Because I thought I heard there. Uh, yeah, some references they do to the, the roar, the size, the roar. Because right. Japan, Japanese has a lot of um, is it on like onomatopoeic type words. Mm-hmm. So, and Amanogawa is Milky Way in Japanese, and then the Nagare Ochiru Yo Deatta is flowed down. Mm. That's great. I don't know if it's so much flowed down inside him with the roar inside him, but that's that's an interesting choice that Side and Sticker made. Maybe it's the. Uh... Yeah, I'm getting a different impression now after listening to the Japanese version of it. I would think a little bit like it more roared over him. Right, like it, it was over him. The it, it was overwhelming. Uh, suddenly, yeah. suddenly his surroundings became overwhelming, um, yeah. and and perhaps perhaps Kawabata had in his mind sort of that ending already, and then thus had to put in uh, the prior references to the Milky Way as they're running down to the fire. That could kind of make sense of why does the Milky Way suddenly make an appearance in the narrative? Um, but it is it is interesting. Um, I do definitely want to read this book in Japanese. I think I I may get a few different impressions. But uh, I I think I think this was an absolutely enjoyable book. If if you were to summarize this for someone who hasn't read it yet, what what would you tell them? I feel like it's it's almost like a to me like a collage of images. It has such a It's so visual. Like I, every time I read this book, I just almost feel like I make I'm making a movie in my head. Even though, you know, the plot is not, it doesn't really have that much of a plot, but the visual elements are so, so vivid, and they combine with the emotional chords that are very strong but vague at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, the experience of reading it is, it's a great. This doesn't really explain anything about the book more than it more than it does the way it makes me feel and that is that it slows everything down for me mm-hmm. and I just try to stay in the moment of the book. Sometimes when I'm reading it cuz it can be a hard read cuz of the vagueness, I try to I can feel myself kind of, and sometimes because of the Japanese language and some of the kanji that I might not know or some of the turn of phrases or words I just don't understand that well. I can sometimes feel myself rushing through it and then I realize I need to slow down and just like really enjoy each moment of it and you know have it wash over me and at the same time it's going to just wash away because the book like the theme of the book the ephemeral ephemeral and the mono no ara, aware the like the theme the book is kind of like that and so it's a weird book that it seems like it leaves a heavy imprint on me at the same time i almost feel like i forget everything about it at the same time which is probably what makes it so re-readable yeah i think uh, i i i tend to agree i was maybe saying it a little differently i uh this is definitely a book that you read for the journey not for the destination because mm-hmm. of the ephemeral nature of the the narrative you know in the end the book is basically saying these things are going to go away and that yeah. that is maybe the nature of you know illicit human relationships mm-hmm. um but at the same time the journey's great the yeah. description and the of the ending is amazing yeah um, like it's such a kick at, like it's such a it's such a strange thing to have a book that's because there's not that much of a plot 
that that each part of it is so you can get into it and and draw so much from each part and description you know like like you've mentioned already several times the theme about the insects and the dead bee in the room and the 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 larva growing on the lacquerware and all those things that are so each of them are so vivid and yet when you get to the end you're also like this movie really ended really well like like <laughs> like you know the, the i don't know the you know the the heroes defeated the giant monster there's no heroes and there are no giant monsters but that finality of it or that although it's fleeting it's also very i don't know i just think it's a masterstroke and how do you end something like this yeah i've read other books you know other literary books and some of them have wonderful qualities that this doesn't have but this ending for me is pretty hard to beat. i think this is a book where uh it's a book you could enjoy many times reading both in english and japanese but would probably make a terrible movie apparently yeah which is weird because i think it's so cinematic but i think that might be within the confines of it being in my head and being a piece of literature and not actual actually a movie it it might make uh for good uh you know planet earth type cinematics uh, or or cultural cinematics but yeah i get what you're saying the the cinematics wouldn't support a, a narrative arc that i think could support a feature film um or, or it could perhaps, but I don't think a lot of people would, would view it positively uh, in that light. Um, I wonder who could do it. That's the thing. And it would, it it would, would have cool to be an art film. Do... Hmm? It would have to be an art, art house film. It wouldn't be some yeah. sort of major motion picture. It would be interesting to... I might have to do some research and maybe like find like what is purported to be the best version or the most watchable version and kind of check it out. And that would be a fun follow-up along with our follow-up, you know, that we might do in a month or two. Yeah, absolutely. Other might have, have read this or commented on this. So that's because a, like I mentioned earlier, The Sound of the Mountain is made into a movie. And that's a pretty good movie. The book is better, and it's it's not Naruse's best movie. And the book is pretty better, but it's a pretty good movie. But And that one, I can see it uh, being more suited to being a movie. Well, this book, yeah. I would love to see it done. I would love to see some kind of some great director now take it, but um, might, I also might, wouldn't be surprised if it's a bit of a train wreck. It might ruin it, actually. Yeah, it wouldn't ruin the book for me. I, 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 you know, I, I would just wonder like how some of these images and themes could be portrayed. All right. So, do you want to close us out here? Well, actually, I kind of want to. Oh, I mean. Oh. Go ahead. Hmm? Well, you know, this is something that, like you said, I, I mention all the time. And, you know, it's 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 uh, arguably my favorite book ever. Um, so, you know, you heard a lot about it from me. So, you know, I and it sounds like overall you had a positive impression. Um, I did. My, my only criticism of the book was wholly due to myself, um, which is that the... I, I was conscious of the fact I was reading an English translation of a Japanese book. So I was micro-analyzing uh, the language perhaps more than I should have. And it initially required me to spend more time reading and rereading various passages. But towards the middle of the book, it, it sort of... You, you know how sometimes when you read a book, you, you almost have to get used to the author's writing style? 
And then as you get used to the writing style, you begin to understand what they're getting at when they use certain expressions or certain grammar structures. I found the same thing with this book. So initially I, you know, I turned to Linda and I said, oh, this book's hard to read. But it's, she's like, is it in Japanese? I'm like, no, it's in English. Um, but then I realized it's because of the way the sentences were structured. And once I wrapped my head around that, I, I, was, I was okay and I wholly enjoyed it. So that was my only, uh, not, I won't even say criticism, but experience. So if you're one of those people that uh, just has difficulty transitioning to different types of writing styles, you know, stick with it. I think you'll, you'll really enjoy it. And it's, it's, as we mentioned, it's definitely worth the, uh, uh, the price of admission and the journey's great. So it, it is fortunately short. So it's worth like, you're not going to feel like you're, you know, you're, you're, you're taking up all your time trying to get through it. You can get, you can pace yourself pretty slowly and you'll That's still, true. even at the worst at the end of the month, you'll get to the end. Like it's yeah. not, this is not going to be, you know, four month journey of you slogging through a brilliant but 800 page book so that's the wonderful thing about it even if it does feel a little difficult to you know get your you know get the training wheels off and really find your balance just yeah i think it's a it's this falls under my category of some of my favorite things in the world where i jokingly criticize them as boring it's 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 boring in the best way i mean it's not boring at all this is you know i'm, I'm joking but it's a point that yeah, it, it rewards that slowdown and just just pace yourself and just, you know, take each step at a time. Before you know it, you're not counting your steps and you're like, you put your head out of the book and you look around and you're like, whoa, like you just feel like, you know, you, you came out of another world. And everyone else around you is just living in the regular world. Not to sound like, you know, like it's not enlightenment or anything. It's just that it's a great feeling that I think a great piece of work can give you. Yeah, I completely agree. So if you have any feedback or comments on the book, um, send us a message. We'd like to know what you think. I think it's been a while since someone's actually left a comment on the blog. There was a period of time where the the Finding Japan website was selling Cialis or Viagra or something like that. Hey, man, because we care about people, man. We want them to have good, good uh, you know, that good sex life. Can't, I should, can't be slacking. I should probably explain that. So we were using, we still are, we were using WordPress. And, you know, there's a lot of vulnerabilities to WordPress. And if you don't keep it up to date, you know, someone will get in there with the comments and, you know, write a script in there. And, you know, sooner or later, you know, you're, you're, you're uh, hawking Cialis to people and you don't even know it. I, I don't think it affected people actually visiting our site, but they may have gotten a Chrome browser warning saying, hey, guys, something's up with Finding Japan. Uh, but that's all been fixed. Uh, everything is good, and uh, you can go there and leave comments, uh, questions. But we'd love to hear what you think as well after after reading the book. Because, uh, again, I think we, we've talked about it many times. I don't know anybody else who's read this book, and I'm going to begin uh, recommending it to some of my friends. I may even donate my copy to either the library or uh, give it to some friends who I know might enjoy it. Ah, oh, nice. Yeah, I'd love to hear from uh, the first-timers, um, people who are like into literature but not necessarily like literature specialists and have read it before and also love to hear from someone maybe yeah if you have a degree in it wouldn't be english literature but it could be if you read a translation version but if you have a degree in literature or, or this is your thing we'd love to hear from you too like and how it can compare to certain trends in other you know other great novels and other cultures and 
or whatever background you can give. Because, yeah, I like this book, but I'm by no means an expert in it. It's just like it's something that I read and kind of vaguely forget because I forget everything and then read again <laughs> and think is wonderful and then forget and then read again. And it's like, yeah, so I'll put but it in my calendar great. to read again in another three years. Yeah, this has been great, though. Like, this is something I wanted to talk about for a while. So, yeah, this is this episode's been on the books for what? Eight or nine years, maybe something like that. Yeah, a little bit. I don't know if we. Yeah, we talk, Yeah, we did mention a few times. All right. Well, I think that's it. Anything else? Uh, not for now. Um, hopefully, would like to be back sooner than later. But you know, no promises. Just a, just the hope. And uh, this podcast is ephemeral. It comes and it goes. Comes and goes like cycles, and yet somehow it is the longest running. I'm gonna keep saying that <laughs> Japan <laughs> podcast in the world. Oh yeah, and partially because of your help. So thanks a lot for keeping it going and uh, helping us out. No, they, thank you for being the well. you're, you know, you're the granddaddy. You're the 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 father of it all. It's ah, awesome, st- st- standing on the shoulders of giants. All right, my friend. Uh, well, so you're in Japan. I'm in the U.S. We should point that out. Late, late yeah. night for you, early morning for me. I hope you're doing well, and I hope the listeners enjoyed, and we'll catch you the next time. All right. Peace out. See ya. See ya.